Hi, I'm Ellen Newhouse, and welcome to Heart and Soul. Are you ready to live a soulfully inspired life? If you are ready to dive deep, get seriously honest with yourself, and learn to trust your deep wisdom, then this is the place for you. I'll be sharing unfiltered stories from my own life and those of many other courageous, creative entrepreneurs and transformational leaders who have dug deep inside themselves to heal, honor their amazing wisdom, and dare to take inspired action. No more sitting by the sidelines wishing for a more satisfying life. It's time for you to become the person you have always dreamed of being. Have a career and a life you love. Join us each week to be spiritually uplifted and inspired into action. And oh yes, I'll be giving you homework to get you moving closer to your dreams. Welcome back to the Heart and Soul podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Newhouse, and today, oh my goodness, I am so excited to share this amazing woman with you. Her name is Rania Kurdi. She became a household name in the Arab world after co-hosting the first pan-Arab pop idol superstar with Fremantle Media. Her extensive career in the Middle East, spanning almost 20 years, established her as a multi-skilled artist working as a TV presenter, actress, and recording artist. Rania then played the lead female part in the Egyptian movie The Seventh Sense and released her second album, topping the charts with her hit song, Shayef Naf Sak. Rania's comeback in 2013, after taking a career break to start a family, was marked by the launch of, a, of her very own comedy sketch show, The Rania Show, for Roya TV in Jordan. And oh my God, it is so funny. The show which she wrote, produced, and starred was aired for two seasons, defining her as the Arab Tracy Ullman. Rania Kurdi has been an ambassador to the Children of War Foundation since 2013 and also trained as a transformational life coach to empower women with motivational talks that have a touch of stand-up comedy. Now based in England, Rania continues to work as a bilingual performer internationally and is currently writing a comedy sitcom that combines both Eastern and Western cultures. Good morning, my dear. Oh, good morning, Ellen. Oh, I am so excited to have you and to share you with all of my people. I'm excited to be here. I'm a big fan of your book. And <laughs> as you know, Aww. I'm always talking about it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. All right, my dear. So as I was telling you, I want to talk to you about the intersection between creativity and healing and how, like, did you ever use your comedy as a way to heal from any adversity in your life or trauma? What do you think? Do you think it was on purpose or did you think the two were separate in your life? 
No, I think they're definitely interlinked. And I realise now that the reason perhaps that I did choose acting was because I needed or wanted to be in other people's shoes. I wanted to live Mm. several lives, not just the one life that I was living. And I think I was very lonely as an only child as well, Mm. um, that my creativity helped me. I would talk to my dolls. I would create (laughs) scenarios or, or little plays. I would write stories. And then when I finally had a chance to start acting when I was 11, my first role was Oliver Twist in the musical. And that was done in Jordan, but very professional scale because we were lucky to have a director who worked on Les Mis in England and Mm. she'd moved to Jordan. So it was the first big production we'd ever had. And that's where I discovered myself as an actress. I noticed that when I wanted to cry as the character, I really sat backstage and I tried to find real pain to Mm. cry about. I took it very seriously, sort of to have every emotion as real as possible. And to make other people feel whatever it was I was trying to portray about the character Mm. was very powerful as well. So not only did I live it, I would allow others to live it through my acting. Mm. And um, so for me, it definitely was a tool that helped me sort of go into other lives or other people's actually I think there would be like a mix-up sometimes even like is that Mm. my memory or my experience or what was it something I read or something I'd acted you know for a while and then in drama school it was really healing as well and it allowed me to explore lots of different parts of myself like the shadow self definitely that we're so scared of exploring acting allows that. So for people who don't understand what the shadow self is, how would you describe it? I think it's the darker side of ourselves that we sort of want to push away or we feel ashamed to have. We think we should be all just light and joy with no like horrible thoughts or Mm. fears or deep shame. And that's what I loved about your book, by the way. You're so honest Mm. about those sort of thoughts, you know, and we all have them. And so when you bring them to the surface and you're okay about them, you realize that's part of being a human Mm -hmm. and you look at them and you question them and you talk to them, you know, just as you would joy or or loving and kindness. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person to have those. That's the shadow self. So it's very important when healing to work with the shadow self. But when I realized that it was damaging was actually not too long ago. It was when my mother passed away or before she passed away, actually, it was when she was ill with cancer for the second time. I was really, really struggling with it because I was her carer and I had two young children and I had Mm. just separated and moved to England and I was alone with them. And now I was to care for my mother because my dad couldn't really handle it. And he was in Jordan and she'd come to England Mm -hmm. and all of it was just all too much. So it brought up a lot of past pain. And how I dealt with it was to start playing my characters to give joy to other people. And I started doing Snapchat. Oh, okay. So that's how these characters came to, to live? The characters came to live. I'll I'll go back to that. But I created them when I was in Jordan. So for, I just want to tell for people who haven't seen the show, it is amazing. I mean, Rania creates these different characters. And what I love about them is that 
without people realizing it, what she's doing is she's breaking stereotypes. So she creates a character that is your stereotypical Arab woman. And then she creates, well, why don't you tell the people what you create? <laughs> why don't you do that? Okay, well... I sort of took a break from presenting shows or acting to be a mum. I tried to do like, mm. right, now I'm going to do the mum thing properly <laughs> and I'm not going to work and I'm going to st stay at home, oh boy. <clears throat> which is what I thought was proper. But it was killing me that I wasn't being mm. creative, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was getting very, very frustrated just spending my time doing play dates, birthday parties, you know, school yes. runs, those sort of things. Mm -hmm. But in that time, I was seeing these women around me that I could think right there's a type you know there's the high society hmm. lady who mm -hmm. wants to do all the trendy things <laughs> but there's deeper layers to her there's the very very competitive mom who I was seeing when I took my son to like taekwondo and oh. I was like oh my god I can so <laughs> see you know And then there was like the secretary that always worked at the um, <laughs> the pediatrician when I'd take my kids to the doctor. And he was always complaining to me that, oh my God, <laughs> our secretary's left again. She's found a husband. You know, they only come here to pick up like, you know, someone to marry. Yeah, they're not here for the job. And I noticed that they all were a certain type. They behaved mm -hmm. the same way. They asked very nosy questions. Hmm. And... So I created, from what I was living as, as sort of this mom, these characters, and I gave them different, different accents so that you mm -hmm. could really differentiate. So mm -hmm. I could be very different in each one. So some, you know, had the headscarf on, some don't. Some are Jordanian, some are Palestinian, some are Syrian. And that's how that was created just before I moved back to England. Oh, okay. Um, that's but when I sense. was Yeah. But mm. when I was here and I was struggling, mm. everyone's saying to me, Rania, you should be on Snapchat. Everyone's on Snapchat. There's somebody that's actually stealing your ideas, doing your characters, like oh, wow. um, little, little lines that I say, and she's oh, taken them on as her own. You should be on there. Hmm. So I was like, oh, okay, what is this Snapchat? So I got into it. And you can only have like 10 seconds each mm. recording. But I started turning them into full sketches, like I was directing full sketches where I do a close-up for 10 seconds, behind the headshot for 10 seconds over the shoulder, a distant shot, for instance. And, by the, and I wouldn't know what the sketch was as I was doing it, but it oh was in character. Goodness. And it would just develop to have a beginning, mid middle and end by the time I'd finished, you know, the three-minute sketch or five-minute sketch. Wow. And... And people were just getting addicted to like, oh, my God, give us a laugh a day kind of thing. Can mm -hmm. we have more? Can you give us more characters? And the more they demanded my codependent people pleasing manners, mm. who, you know, which I still hadn't handled, was just doing more, more, more on top of me being sort of carer, the kids, you know, oh, I was boy. hysterical half the time. Mm. But I'd still stick a wig on and quickly <laughs> do a sketch. And... um Uh, even my eyes from crying, for instance, were like swollen or oh. really, really tiny and my nose mm. was swollen. I would use it for the character that she'd had plastic surgery, for instance. <laughs> I have this pop star one. I'd lost so much weight because I was oh. depressed as well. And oh. I used that as the character. So mm. I would just use my life and make it fun for everybody else. I, mm. I sort of, But that's a painful part of it. And then my 
camera broke, the screen broke. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to have to have this fixed and not do this for three days. And I had Mm. people kind of depending, well, it felt like they're depending on it, saying my mum's dying of cancer or I have a sick child and this is really helping them. We wake up and you cheer us up, you know, please don't stop doing it. So Mm. I started feeling like this was a mission right? and uh, that I couldn't stop when I needed to stop. So my my camera being fixed made me stop for three days and I completely broke down all the pain and all the trauma Mm. and all the things that I was avoiding through Mm. doing comedy for others came up and I realized I needed to just have time to heal and I I stopped doing Snapchat after a year even though I'd gained like three million followers by then I was like oh my god if I'd kept that up but you had done that for an entire year? How exhausting. Yeah, and oh. I dragged my kids in with me. Oh, no. I'd even pay them sometimes, like, here's a fiver, just do what I'm asking you to do. <laughs> yeah, oh. so it was a bit obsessive. So now I've really got a balance since, you know, I've trained as a coach, I've had the therapy and the coaching and the mm-hmm. healing to really not use my life and my pain to be comedy. And that's why I discovered I'd never chosen stand-up comedy because that's what it is. You're just telling people the part that will make them laugh and you're keeping the painful bit to yourself. Yeah, Yeah. and I like the idea of really healing the painful parts so that you then can actually use comedy in a much healthier way for you. Because the other way is does not seem very healthy. I mean, I did stand-up comedy for five and a half days, I think, in my life, and really was using my pain. And, oh, that was such a painful way to go. I, Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad. So when did you do the coaching certificate? Uh, three years ago. So it's all quite oh. new. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but I've been like 15 years doing self-work I would Mm -hmm. say in every possible way like I've done Reiki healing for years and years Mm -hmm. for myself and for others I've been in a group therapy workshop for not workshop well it's sort of it's just group therapy for three years okay and that was very very helpful because through listening to others and being Mm -hmm. triggered by others um, stories you realize where you've got stuff that you haven't dealt with so I found that really brilliant And then I've had CBT for a year. I've had coaching um, that's intuitive with energy Mm -hmm. healing, all sorts of things before I felt, okay, now that I'm good, I feel that I I want to help others because it would have drained me if I'd gone into helping others before I could. Oh, absolutely. And it's so not a healthy way to do it. So what did you know before your mom got sick that you had all of this healing work to do? Or did you just realize as you were taking care of your mom, all the issues that were coming up? I did start therapy and all those things before mom was ill. But the first time she fell ill, it started bringing up much more of how much I'm a carer for them, how much I parent rather than get parented. Mm -hmm. And so that started coming up. And then when she was ill the second time and I felt yet again, I was the one making the difficult decisions as the parent rather than as the child, a lot came up then. So all the anger with the sadness Mm -hmm. 
came up then. And that's when the real work happened. That's when I allowed myself the time and space to be quiet and to go inwards and to start gardening and be quiet Mm. and not keep giving, giving, giving to everyone else but myself. So those sort of things all started changing after my mother's death. Yeah, Mm. I think that was the main thing. I'm just curious about this. My assumption is that in the Arab world, it's therapy is not seen as a positive thing. And yet you were living in Jordan and doing a lot of therapy. So how is therapy seen in the Arab world? I think it used to be something that they look on as, oh, my God, you know, only crazy people need to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. But now life coaching has become a real trend. Suddenly it's a cool thing. Mm. But really everything in the Arab world, I feel, is it depends where you are and how educated and how religious. So it's very mixed up as to who thinks what. So Mm. it might be just one area um, that is okay with it and open to it, but it's very sort of a no-no in other areas. So So I live in the capital. Oh, okay. So in the areas where it's like a more modern sense of living, then then it's seen okay. And in the religious communities, it would not be seen as okay? Yeah, it's, it's not just because of religion. It's more like um, they're not as exposed. They're much more traditional. Just keep to sort of uh, fitting in, pleasing the family. Nobody talk mm. about any secrets. And anyway, I'm very different really to my parents. I mean, my mum's British. Um, she does have originally Arab roots, but she was brought up in England. You know, oh, went so to that, Catholic yeah. school, had an English stepdad. Yeah. But she behaved quite Arab in her way. She wanted to be Arab, I felt. So I did have different mentality or thinking as well in the house. But even then, my dad and my mom just didn't see why I would want to do that. You know, they'd like to keep things closed and quiet. And I like to expose and question and be curious. So Mm -hmm. I was very different from day one. And um, I think I triggered a lot of things for my mother you know she didn't want to think of her past she didn't want to talk of certain things and I wanted to know and I wanted her to I wanted her to heal so I could heal right right and was she able to do much healing before she died no she's the one that got into Reiki before me and sort of wanted me to do it but I felt her Reiki Yeah, hers was more a social thing because it meant that she had friends Mm, um, to meet up with and do things with. Mm. But um, she didn't really want to go inwards. She didn't want to see shadow, you Mm -hmm. know, self. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, right to the last moment on her deathbed, I tried to have intimate conversations with her. I tried for her to let go and to really reveal her true self or her Mm. feelings about things. She just wouldn't. Yeah. So I didn't get that closure from her, but I was able to get it afterwards yes. by sort of, you know, soul searching, um, prayer, healing, energy work, a lot of things. I, I was able to then, um, like you said in your book, sort of separate her as a human with her own experience and struggles and unhealed traumas. It wasn't about me. I could understand where she was coming from and how shut down she was. Yes, that is so beautiful because I think so often 
as daughters especially, we want our mothers to be the most amazing human beings so that that she reflects back to us what what's possible for us. And I love what you said is that you could do healing work once she passed because I think so often people feel that once their parents have passed, that they can't do healing work. And I feel just the opposite. I feel like it's so possible to do a great deal of healing work once they have passed. Yeah. So what has been the most difficult part in your work to heal from? I think what I haven't healed from yet is fear of men. And I didn't even know I had a fear of men. It's Mm. like become very obvious in the last few years for me that there is that fear. Wow. And do you know where the core piece of this came from? Yeah. Well, now, uh, you know, after I've fitted the pieces of the puzzle, I realize that I only feel fear if there's unwanted interest. So if it's someone I'm really not interested in and they're showing interest, I panic Mm, mm -hmm. that if I don't please, they could become angry or they could hurt. Yes. And that men are unpredictable is, is sort of the fear that I have. And I'll explain why I think that is that I think that. But if I am interested, then there's no worries. And, you know, you would never in a million years think this cocky, sort of forthright, (laughs) confident person could possibly be fearful. Because in that situation, I would be comfortable, you know, because I know that I am not going to upset anyone. Like I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm pleasing them, giving them what they want. And oh, I realized I that my nightmares, my dreams <clears throat> were always that kind of scenario where I would have to appease somebody that was, you know, scary or threatening with my charm or flirting. Mm. I used to think, what are these dreams about? So first of all, my mum used to say that I had this friend called Danny, <laughs> that mm. she was friends with his mum. And he, she used to say, oh, he always used to hit you. And, and I used to think, well, why did you let me hang out with him? But obviously, so she could hang out with her friend. I don't, you know, oh. I guess I was a bit unprotected there, but I have no memory of what Danny used to do. Mm. But then at the age of nine, I had a very scary experience. Funny enough, I've always just spoken about it like, oh, yeah, when I was nine, this happened. Mm-hmm. Not really attaching that there was any trauma that had affected me because of it until Mm. I started having energy healing and intuitive coaching with this coach. And um, she told me about a TED talk called Let's Get Naked by Sheila Kelly. And Mm. it's about getting naked of the heart, really. It's not um, what it sounds. But it's about how we have shame about our feminine female body. And it comes from that usually there is a first offense that happens about our Mm. body. It could be something our parents say or somebody else shames us about, you know, like don't don't sit like that, cross your legs nicely or put your legs nicely or you can't go out in shorts looking like that or, you know, Mm. what are you doing with that boy? It could be anything like that that shocks you to think, oh, what is it about me that's shameful, you know? Yes. And... So that started me thinking about how I dress. And I thought, 
I always, even though I've got a slim body, a nice figure, I've always worn baggy clothes. Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable to get the attention of anybody and them noticing my figure. So funny enough on TV, I wear very revealing clothes. I know you do. I know. I I watched those clips. I was like, right on. (laughs) So on TV, I feel protected because they're not real, you know, they're not people right in front of me. Oh, now that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I guess because knowing you as I know you, and then I saw the clips and I was yeah, like, look at me and sweat. Yes, I know. And then there's the, especially that pink little thing dress. I was like, wow, okay. But that makes sense. I can dress up for TV and then yes. uh, I go back to the dressing room. I wear my, you know, normal clothes, don't get any attention and walk out and that's it. Yes. But if I'm in a club or if I'm sat mm-hmm. somewhere or if mm-hmm. I'm going downtown or something like that, I don't want some guy going or whatever or yes. grabbing me or that. Yeah, that worries me. So I don't. So, yeah, after watching that, I said to her, I've noticed the way I dress is this, you know, and I always wonder how girls feel confident to wear leggings and tight jeans. And, you know, I really don't. And I said to him, there's something funny about when I wear boots. I wear a lot of boots, big Harley Davidson, cowboy Mm. boots, Mm -hmm. um, chunky boots. I always feel tough and I start walking a very different way when I've got my boots on. And what's amazing about her, she can tap into the memory or the trauma Mm -hmm. of where that think is coming from and she said this is something that happened when you were nine Hmm. what's coming up for you and I was like what's coming up for me was when I was attacked by this man when I was nine and without realizing the story starts making sense and it will for you about the boots right but I hadn't seen it up to that point so what had happened was me and a friend of mine called Jasmine she was English and she was living in Jordan for a while We used to play at the swimming pool and our parents were there, but then we would sneak into like one of the ballrooms of the hotel because the the pool was in the Intercon Hotel. And we would sneak in there and we would secretly like do our sticker club and our beautiful Sunday Hello Kitty books and notebooks like it was a big secret Mm. underneath like a table or sit in a corner where no one could see us. Mm. And so one of the workers there had seen us in the room and he came up and said in Arabic you know do you want to go somewhere that has light I immediately my gut told me there's something wrong no but she was naive and and said yeah yeah and started walking with him and um, I thought well I can't leave her so I walked with her Mm. and there were big swinging heavy wooden doors Mm -hmm. that led to somewhere else in this Mm -hmm. ballroom that we didn't know And he pushed the door and pushed us inside. And all it was was a little corridor that had a woodcutting machine right behind it. So it was obviously like where they fixed furniture or did something like that in the back rooms. Yeah. And so suddenly we were stuck in this tiny little like narrow corridor behind us with a very dangerous machine and in front Mm. of us a very heavy door with the guy there and he grabbed my friend and we were in our bathing suits barefoot Mm. he grabbed her against the wall and he started fondling her and kissing her and she was panicking and literally froze Mm. and I remember thinking okay I've got to do something Mm. but what if I make him angry like if if I do something and it doesn't work and I make him angry we're in danger. We could go on that cutter. And I think that's where it's come from, that I make sure 
that I don't anger anybody. Yes. So um, in my head, what could I do except kick him? And this <sighs> had never crossed my mind before. That that moment must have been absolutely terrifying to make a decision oh. to kick him or not to kick him when I was barefoot and I'm only nine. Like, Absol- how can I hurt him right. with a nine-year-old I mean, foot? Absolutely terrifying, horrifying. So absolutely. I think I must have had the thought, what if mm. I had boots on? I could definitely kick him oh. and hurt him, but yeah. I'm going to have to do it. I have no memory of this. So that must have been like the trauma that's blocked. Mm. But I know that I got out of that room and that that kick worked. But God knows how that must have hurt my own foot if it hurt him enough (laughs) to, you know, grab his leg or stop for a minute that I could grab her, push that heavy door and run out. And then the boots made sense. And she said to me, and that's why you feel safe in boots. And suddenly I thought, oh, my God, it started fitting so many things that when I transferred from an all-girls school to a mixed school, Mm -hmm. I was 12. Mm. I said to my dad, can you get me those army boots, you know, that I would see soldiers wearing? Yeah, Yeah, which were like DMs. And we knew somebody who knew somebody and we got them from the army. And I used to wear these big army boots and I kicked every boy in that same area Mm. in their shins that I could. Like they'd Mm. just have to go, you know, hello. And I'd go (laughs) bang. Well, you were making, you were setting your boundary and making sure that they knew not to mess with you. Yeah. But I, you know, I must've been like in fear the whole time. And I knew that that was my armor was kick the shin, kick the shin, wear boots, kick the shin, wear boots. And then my husband to be when I was 23 and he wore metal toed cowboy boots. And I think something in me thought I'm safe with him. He has those boots on Mm. because Seven years later, he had an accident. He fell on the stairs and they had to cut the boot off. And it was very, very painful for him. And he had like, you know, a screw put into his ankle and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so from then on, he wore tennis shoes and never wanted to wear those boots again. And from then on, our marriage failed. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Because you no longer felt safe. Yeah, I didn't feel safe. I felt like he couldn't protect me. And... I never realized it was something like that, that was so deep and embedded and psychological until she just, you know, told me this memory from nine is linked to the boots. And then suddenly so many things made sense. And it's funny with animals, we get it. If an animal's been kicked by somebody in white trainers and he barks at everyone in white trainers, we go, oh, yes, he had a traumatic experience. And so he reacts. But we don't realize that we do the same thing. Right. And we are just like animals. I mean, and we hold the trauma just like animals in our tissues of our bodies. And so you may be able to, on the beginning levels of healing, you heal it from the your mind, your memory, but only until we get the healing on the, the level of the, the tissues where the memories are stored will we be able to have a full healing? Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you got it now on the memory level. Now it's time to go into the deeper levels on in the tissue so that you can release that memory and you can be safe in your body, wherever you are, and you can release the shame that got attached to those memories. I wear tight jeans and leggings. 
And now what I'm fascinated by, and I'm so proud of you, is that you've started an initiative called First Time so that people can know that it's that they are not shameful. So can you tell us a little bit about this initiative and what your dream is? I'm about to launch it this month. It's taken sort of a year of preparing of what's the best way to do it that's going to be helpful and impactful. So I called it first time and in Arabic it's awal marra because first time should be something that's beautiful. It should be something Mm -hmm. that's of choice and that comes from love or exploration. Mm. And what I've discovered through clients that I've had, uh, my own experience, my friend's experience, that hardly mm-hmm. anyone, there's very few of us that have not had some kind of traumatic, abusive, mm-hmm. sexual harassment of any kind early on. Mm. It, you know, it's happened always very early on. Mm-hmm. As early as two years old, three years old, there's some memories that are sort of kept in the body Yes. You know, that come up as well when, when I'm coaching with people or just with friends that they they have certain fears, but they don't know where they're coming from. And then something could come up that they realize, wait a minute, I didn't consider this as yes, abuse. Exactly. Something happened to me when I was this, this and that. And the shock of it, when it hits you later that you realize what it is, mm-hmm. you've got to heal then. And so for me, I've had you know, quite a few things. And it's only in the last few years that I've done so much inner work that they're all making sense to me now. Like, oh my God, that was grooming. Mm. Oh my God, that was rape. Oh my God, that was, you know, things that I just made excuses about or I named them something else. When Me Too happened, I didn't get it. I didn't get what the fuss was about. You know, what what they're making such a big deal about. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, I was in denial that it was happening to me when I was a TV presenter. And yes, I said no, but it made my life hell. And I left the job. Yes. And that happened over and over. And who did I blame? I blame myself. Why don't I stick with, with jobs that I'm at? Why don't I succeed properly? It's because I keep leaving and starting somewhere new. Well, why is that? Suddenly mm-hmm. someone brought it to my attention, who's a therapist that I knew. Yes. And she's like, Rania, these are really traumatic stories that you're saying. I'd be like, oh, yeah, but it's nothing like, you know, what was going on that I knew about with these, you know, other women or actresses or presenters that were really, it's obviously, you know, they had somebody that Mm. was managing them, pimping them out, do you know, awful Mm. things. Mm. Uh, Private parties, this, being blackmailed for that. So in comparison, I didn't see that mine was harassment. So you just said something, I want to stop here, that is so, well, you've said so many things, but two things that... I want to really stop and kind of highlight this. I think they're so important is that we make up stories like you did to make it okay. Or we make up stories where there's something wrong with us. And so that we never put the blame where it belongs and we hold the shame. And it's amazing to me how long we can hold that in our bodies and mask the truth of what happened to us. So for people who are listening, who 
may not understand themselves yet fully, who may be wondering why they have so much shame about who they are or about their bodies, what would you say, how can they begin to know or to heal the shame that they're holding? Well, definitely, it's not something you can do by yourself. Mm. I think you need that that expert person that you trust mm-hmm. to be able to be seeing the patterns that you can't see and help you see them. It's not possible for you at first to be able to see from a different perspective and sort of detach. Mm-hmm. And then once that happens, things start making sense. You know, I started looking back at old letters and things I'd written in my, like my journal or in my calendar and then timing when that happened with what I'd written and, and, and things like that. I could see it completely differently. I'd be like, oh, my God, that was mm. manipulated. That was preempted. That wasn't, you know, but I wouldn't have been able to look at it and question it if I still had that belief in my head that it was a beautiful relationship, you know, but he was a bit of a psycho, for instance, but, you know, mm. he loved me. No, it was totally not that. Yeah. And then since being able to heal, the, the, the healing comes from grieving for yourself. You know, it's mm. that whole inner child work. You have to grieve for that poor child who was innocent yes. and didn't know what was happening to them and the adult that allowed that to continue. So I am the adult Mm. that allowed that to continue because I also blame that child or shame that child. Mm. You know, my mother didn't know any better. So she shamed the the child. Like, you know, she found a few things, a few letters, for instance, from this boyfriend who was grooming me. And instead of worrying about me and saying, what is he doing? What is going on? Mm -hmm. You know, you can talk to me. She shamed me because she, had her own shame and she worried about how it would look if dad found out and what he would say or do about it and say you know where have you been as a mother kind of thing so so you then carry that shame but now I can look back and go wait a minute that 13 year old girl was such a tomboy Mm -hmm. so ambitious Mm -hmm. so kind and so naive she didn't choose that that was something sort of brought on to me and then what also shocked me I think once things start opening in your mind you start noticing and things come your way to help Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. and when I watched the Michael Jackson documentary for instance of how the boys who were groomed and abused by him when they grew up they realized when they had children who were their age when they were going through it they could see that wait a minute how could I judge myself as a seven or eight year old you know I definitely Mm. was not in love with him and wanted that part of it. My child wouldn't. And I think being a mother, hearing other people's experiences, training as well as a coach, having my own therapy, reading Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, self-help help books, meditation, all of that. But I think without teachers and gurus and therapists and coaches that I've had along the way, I don't mm-hmm. think I'd have reached there by myself. Definitely not. Okay. And are there any books that you have read that you're thinking, oh, this would be great for somebody at the beginning of their journey? Mm. Well, I don't know if it's beginning of their journey. <laughs> These can be quite hardcore, but maybe beginning of the journey, The Untethered Soul. 
Oh, that's such a beautiful book. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is. Yes. And the audiobook is lovely, by the way. And then I would say Silently Seduced is a very good book to understand how even without abuse, yes. you can be abused in a, yes. an emotional way. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be suffocating when the parent is needy of you mm-hmm. rather than, you know, they're independent of you yes. and you feel you need to give to them all the time. Mm-hmm. That in a way is a seduction. And um, Many Lives, Many Masters, I thought was beautiful about oh, past so- life. Yes, that is such a wonderful book. And I had the opportunity to work with him directly. And what a gift that man has to bring to the world. Yeah, so good. So I know before we got started in the very, very beginning, you said, I would like to experience that sound healing. Would you like a little bit today to end with? Okay. All right. I thought that might be a treat. So before we do that, because I'm going to then say goodbye at the very end, is there a way that people can find first time? Yes, it will be on my Instagram, which is at Kurdi Rania. So it's my name the other way around. Kurdi Rania, K-U-R-D-I. R-A-N-I-A. And that's where I will start it. I will have an Instagram specially for it, awal marra, first time. But I, it will, you know, be announced at least on my Instagram. And, and I do lives and, you know, try and um, create as much awareness there as well. And I can be contacted on my um, website, raniakurdi.com. If anyone wants to ask about anything, then I can direct them to the initiative or anything else I'm doing. We're collecting stories of people as well. So what we're doing actually for the first thing is I have got the voices of many different people to say, my first time I was 12 years old, my first time I was five years old, Mm. my first time, and just get ages, ages, ages with their pictures of them at that age. Oh, wow. And I just want to cause that first initial Guys, it happens so early on. Be yes. careful. Yes. You know, notice your children's behavior if something's happening. Don't think that it doesn't happen and it only happens in the odd rural area or something, especially in Jordan. They're always saying, oh, well, you know, maybe she went out late at night or she shouldn't mm-hmm. have dressed this way or it's only in sort of uneducated areas. No, it happens to all of us in the most sneakiest of ways that you've not even noticed and the child isn't even aware of or sure that it is what it is. And so I want that shock factor for them to realize how many of us are now speaking up uh, and, so good. and saying so yeah. that they can see that this has nothing to do with how you dress, how you behave. It's something that happens very early on and we need some rules and awareness put into place. And we also need parents who know how to talk to their children rather than want to hush it up and say, don't yes. be silly or, you know, he didn't mean that or whatever. Like my story when I was nine is till now, I kind of think, did it happen? Did it not happen? Because Mm. my parents have never talked about it. Mm -hmm. And so I went and asked my dad and the way he reacted defensively, didn't want to go there. I realized, yeah, this totally Mm. happened. He doesn't. And then I was like, why are you reacting this way? I don't know. You should have asked your mother, you know. And then finally I badgered him about it. And he said, well, she told me that, you know, there was this man that 
that scared you or did something, but I didn't know it was anything like sexual, you know, attack mm-hmm. or abuse. And so I realized she just wanted to cover it up so she wouldn't get in trouble with him. And right. so she never brought it up for me, possibly as well, thinking it, it's better that I forget it and it wouldn't traumatize me. So oh. I think when you're not validated, exactly, yeah. you then wonder and you think, did it, did it not? And mm-hmm. it stays something that isn't healed. So I think it's very important that we allow the child to talk about it, to understand that it is painful, to be open about it, mm-hmm. to know that they can come to you and say that. And um, also to have parents who do have boundaries and say no to other people, because we see that and we learn from that. Whereas if we see our mums keep quiet about things, then we learn that we need to keep quiet about things. Yes. And we are now living in a time where it is time for all of us to stand up and speak up. So I am so delighted that you are starting this initiative. And it's super important, not only in the Arab world, but also in the US and in Europe. It's so important. There cannot be enough validation at this point and enough people uh, shining lights on the issues. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you so much for being with me today and everyone who's listening. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and give you a little bit of sound healing to end. And is there any area in your body that is calling for healing at this moment? I'd say my throat. Okay. All right. And I'm also very much drawn to your solar plexus. So I'm going to work on both. And then when we finish, I'll just gently say goodbye because I want you to be able to then go and just just be with it. Okay. All right. So all you have to do is just breathe and receive it. And I'll just say a little prayer. So give me a moment and then I'll begin. He am he am he am he am he am he am ya And take a nice deep breath in. 
just allow yourself to be with that. As I say goodbye to all of our listeners, have a great day and I will see you next week. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining me on the Heart and Soul podcast. It's such a joy for me to be with you. I know firsthand how much easier it is to rise when you have community to laugh with, shed a few tears with, and be inspired by. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, go subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, please contact me directly at ellennewhouse.com. And while you're there, grab the special resources I have created for you to begin to take inspired action in your own life. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.